Hello, everyone. It's Andile Masugo of African Tech Roundup here. I'm really excited to be sharing the first installment of a two-part conversation I had with one of Zimbabwe's most well-known and perhaps most well-respected business people, the economist-turned-banker, entrepreneur, and investor, Dr. Nigel Chanakira. Now, Dr. Nigel is probably most famous for founding Kingdom Financial Holdings Limited in 1997 and for orchestrating that company's much-publicized merger and demerger with the Meikles Africa Group uh, before later selling out to the Mauritius-based Afrasia Holdings. Now, you definitely want to listen in because this podcast offers fascinating insights into Dr. Nigel's personal and professional origin story. And this particular episode features an intriguing anecdote about the role he played in setting up a certain Strive Masiwa, the founder of Econet, to become one of Zimbabwe's most prolific entrepreneurial successes to date. And how, simultaneously, Dr. Nigel made what might be the poorest investment decision of his career. That's all next. But first, I must tell you about an initiative we're backing at African Tech Roundup called Zimbabwe Investment Tour 2019. Now, ZIT 2019 is a carefully curated insight mission and transactional opportunity for discerning investors who view Africa as the next frontier for high growth investment opportunities. Now, ZIT 2019 is set to take place in Zimbabwe's capital, Arare, in September 2019. And the event is set to attract serious regional and international investors who have a keen interest in sourcing actionable insight about Zimbabwe, making important high-level connections, and of course, most importantly, doing deals with investment-ready companies, asset managers, fund managers, and government authorities in the new Zimbabwe. Now, for the moment, this is just a heads up. More details about how you can be a part of the event will be revealed in the coming weeks and months. But in the meantime, you can head to ZimbabweInvestmentTours.com and subscribe for the newsletter so you don't miss a thing. And you can also follow Zimbabwe Investment Tours on Twitter at Investment Tours on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Zimbabwe Investment Tours. And of course, on LinkedIn, just search Zimbabwe Investment Tours and follow them there. And now, without any further ado, enjoy the episode. My name is Nigel Chanakira. Uh, I guess of kingdom fame. I am an entrepreneur. I am a success facilitator or success coach. I... Uh, do private equity investments uh, in Zimbabwe and Southern Africa, and I am fanatical about the prospects of Zimbabwe. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Dr. Nigel Chanakira. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, the pleasure is certainly mine. Let's unpack that self-introduction a little bit. What do you think of yourself as first or foremost? I think first and foremost, I am a motivator of people. I love motivating people to realize their God-given potential. I believe I have been very, very privileged in my life in the sense of being introduced into business early. My parents were pioneer businessmen. Uh, the first bus operator in Zimbabwe was actually uh, a great, an uncle of mine who's late, and he set up Modern Express buses, uh, originally a lorry, which was converted into a bus. And so that whole pioneering and entrepreneurial spirit reigns very, very strongly within our family. So I'm a second-generation entrepreneur. Uh, my dad was a grocer. 
he had shops uh, in Harare and uh, Mondoro area. And so we grew up, in a sense, behind the till. And so that status that comes with a businessman within a big family, or as the Chanakiras were, uh, the status that my uncles and my dads earned within the family were so compelling to me that all I ever wanted to be was to be an entrepreneur and a businessman, you know, in my own right. And having then become that as a banker, uh, I set up and founded uh, Kingdom at a very young age. I was 27 years old when we were awarded our bank license, which was unheard of. And so we... Was that the first uh, black-owned bank in Zimbabwe or had some come before? I, I can't quite recall. Yeah, we were not the first. Many think we were the first because we were the loudest, I guess, and uh, with the... A young CEO that attracted a lot of following. But uh, definitely uh, Intermarket uh, with Nick Vingirai and the late Gibson Muringai were the pioneers of banking in Zimbabwe as far as black banks were concerned. And then came NMB, uh, Trust Bank, and NDH, and then Kingdom. Uh, Are you serious? All those before you? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, they were older, wiser. They saw the light and they had more capital than I had. And ours was a bit of a fairy tale story in the sense that I had no capital along with my partners. And I had to persuade my wife to sell our family home in Eastleigh so that we could have the uh, startup capital for the bank. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, I believe the, the youngsters call that being a ride or die. Yes, absolutely. It's betting the farm, uh, fa you know, essentially. But uh, my wife was gracious enough. She had seen, you know, my performance as an executive. Yeah, you were, you were, I think at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, easily one of the most highly rated uh, stockbrokers at the time. You had this reputation, like if you want to sweat the market... Um, with some intelligence, you know, speak to Nigel. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, essentially, what we did as a very unique effort was we had a television program called Making Money Make Sense, which really became the flagship, uh, you know, marketing tool where we were educating the black man to look at financial markets as opposed to just having a passive savings account. So we encourage savings and investments, and particularly on the stock market. And then, of course, the money market itself with the investments in treasury bills and the likes. And so because, you know, we were saying make, you know, making money makes sense. Mari hairare, money never sleeps. Imali hailali, you know, it just attracted a huge following. And little did I know, I thought it was perhaps a you know, public relations exercise that we were embarking on uh, to build a brand. Uh, but I had no idea how much power there was in that uh, brand building effort, which we probably did for two years before we realized how powerful it was. Uh, Old Mutual did uh, demutualization and uh, all of a sudden over you know, 50,000 black people had a share certificate. And they didn't know what to do with it because they were traditionally policy holders. And the policy holders were given uh, a portion of, you know, the old mutual listed shares. 
Give us a sense of when we're talking here, just to sort of locate this for us. This is probably 1998, if my memory serves me right. We started off our banking group 1995, and uh, so we got our license, nine, uh, we launched November 94, we got our license July 95, and then in about 1997-98 was when Old Mutual was delisted. Or was listed rather. And so only then, you know, two years after I had launched the program on TV called Making Money Make Sense, I had a newspaper article I was doing in the Financial Gazette. And only then, because the moment uh, Old Mutual shares arrived into the hands of this 50 odd thousand people, we had 30,000 people, you know, standing outside the doors of our stockbroking firm. And they were saying, what do we do with these shares? you the guys that talk, you know, about the share market. So, you know, almost overnight, we became an asset manager. And our stockbroking firm became the largest retail broker, uh, you know, in Zimbabwe. And so that then pushed us to then lead people to diversify their portfolios by then creating kingdom unit trusts. And so, again, unit trusts were not known, uh, or mutual funds as they're known elsewhere. And so, again, we had to go through an education exercise to say, you cannot have all your eggs in one basket in this one share. So, obviously, Old Mutual is a bellwether stock, but it would pay you to diversify. And then the next phase of our growth was uh, then a series of privatizations, which uh, the government of Zimbabwe did. And lo and behold, uh, with uh, the cotton company, uh, the Rainbow Tourism Group now as it's known, uh, Dairy Board and the likes, all were listed. And of course, they had to approach us in a sense uh, as the largest stockbroking company on the retail side. And that really drew a lot of companies to us and uh, generated a new business. So originally we had began in the fixed income securities market. That's where we cut our teeth uh, as a discount house, uh, trading uh, fixed income securities, and then of course the share uh, market. And then naturally with organic growth, we became advisors to listing, uh, listed companies uh, for rights issues and then also for new listings. Did you launch initially with a universal financial services license or did you iterate into the one-stop shop you guys eventually became? Well, we started strictly as a discount house. Uh, You know, in fact, the interesting bit is that was the intention. But it is a bit of a bureaucratic process to get a banking license. And it took us no less than six months to, to get it at the time. And so while we launched with that, business in mind the founding partners included a stockbroker and so our stockbroking business was in fact then the first to be officially licensed and so we began officially as a stockbroking company but we traded uh, fixed income securities you know in a sense under that license before consolidating into the discount house so i'm going to want us to pick things up in terms of your personal business history and also just anecdotes from your experience as a businessman 
But I want to you know, go back to how you spoke about things I didn't know about your, your family being in business, you being a second generation entrepreneur. It's something I find refreshing in speaking to you off mic just before we started this interview and even just, um, just the other day as well. You, you project a, a refreshing candor around framing the role of privilege in, the, in your sort of origin story. And even when you speak about, you know, we've, we've chatted about your children and uh, your current business interests and so on and so forth. You don't seem to be carrying a complex around acknowledging what contributed to your success and perhaps what might pose as limiting factors to other people who are looking to emulate what you've created with your career and, and, and your life and your investments. So speak to me a little bit about that, perhaps even starting with things as basic as how different your story would have been had you been born to a family that wasn't entrepreneurial in the Zimbabwe you were born to, or had you not attended some of the prestigious schools you attended in in coming up, had your family not been, and when I say your family, I mean you and your wife, had you not had family assets sufficient to launch something like Kingdom, help people sort of appreciate what some take for granted around the role of privilege in this whole story? Well, Andile, you ask an interesting question, but the reality of it is I had brothers, I had cousins uh, that also shared the same privileges, as it were, but perhaps didn't seize the opportunities as I did. So I wouldn't go as far as to say that that privileged upbringing, which I'm grateful for, um, you know, would have given me the, you know, the unfair advantage as such. Uh, simply because when I look around me, uh, there's a handful of business, um, call them business tycoons or business people that have emerged from our family. We come from a big family. So clearly it's taking advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves. The reality, though, one cannot deny is a person can't go further than they've been exposed. So I was fortunate in getting a lot of exposure of what life could be if I ventured, you know, along the entrepreneurial lines, as opposed to perhaps, you know, focusing on a profession, which was the tradition. That's how our generation grew up. You go to school to get a training so that you get a job. Whereas... You know, my observations as a young person was looking around me at a funeral. My mom was a state registered nurse. My dad was a businessman. Uh, You know, who got the, you know, at 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 a family function, who got the status? My uncles were teachers. They were headmasters. I come from a good stock, as, as indicated. My uncle was a permanent secretary. A nephew was the ambassador to the United Kingdom. And so you watch... But the leverage and power and respect from the community, in my observation, was to those who were businessmen. They waited for them at a funeral. Uh, They, you know, kind of determined what happened to the surviving spouse and the kids. They came with a big car and that had an impression, you know, for me. And so even in my neighborhood, and this is not to say that I had a silver spoon uh, per se, uh, I grew up in Highfields. Now, when I look around and... Which uh, is a township, of course, yeah. a township of Arari. Yeah, equivalent to your Soweto. Um, if you look at Highfields, the guys that still emerged, and uh, bless his heart, Oliver Mtukudzi, for example, 
grew up two kilometers from where I lived. But Oliver, you know, being 14 years our senior, chose music as, as a profession. And we watched Oliver then carve out an entrepreneurial streak with his music. And he became a different musician. And that always fascinated me because he drew crowds to Guanzura Stadium and people paid to see and hear this guy play. And so in me, I think my eyes, you know, were always saying, where's the money? You know, where's the opportunity? And it is that training which I think we've got to inculcate and make now part of the syllabus of, you know, the teaching that we, we do at school so that people can have an outlook to create value, to create something. And then, you know, or to become a professional and a good one at that. Because even then, I started by becoming an economist and then a banker and, and, and wanting to distinguish myself as such and then wanting to turn that profession into a business. And so I would look around Africa. I see the opportunities in Africa still that we can carve out and make Africa a better place if we have our eyes that are wide open and we are sensitive to opportunities of adding value and creating things out of nothing. See, this is what I like, the balanced nuance that you're presenting because the other extreme, I think that is quite prevalent in, in, in many African states, uh, in many emerging parts of the world, is confusing the sort of determination, the discipline required to actually succeed commercially in any field with leveraging of privilege or political power or things of that nature. And I think that tends to be an oversimplification when, when I sometimes even hear your name discussed in, in private conversation. What oversimplification have you encountered? I, I, I don't know that people would say it to your face perhaps, but what oversimplification do you, do you sense about your origin story? in the marketplace or perhaps that you encounter as you continue to assert yourself as a businessman? Obviously, people would, uh, would, would say, you know, well, he got favors. I think that's a common cliche. He, you know, got favors. But this is pure, solid, hard work. You don't save and, and build a home and buy a home and then sell it. Uh, you know, those... Not if you're Zimbabwean. I mean, you don't just roll, you don't roll like that. Exactly. So I think that's the point. So it's an oversimplification in the sense that they think that, uh, you know, your name has, has carried you through. And of course, it takes a lot to build a name. And a name is worth more than silver and gold. A good reputation is worth, you know, more than silver and gold. So from that perspective, I think the added advantage that I see now, clearly, as, as my wife often says, is, well, pick up the phone and, and just tell people who you are. Or, you know, shake hands and introduce yourself because your name then means a lot. But you've invested. Yes, absolutely. And that's the point that uh, people need to understand, that it takes a lot of grail to actually invest in a name and through thick and thin be able to hold up your name and your name can actually then open doors for you and your colleagues. And that name I've used you know, to Zimbabwe's advantage in the region. I've used that name on global stages at the World Economic Forum uh, because I can pick up the phone and, and call Professor Schwab and be able to get him to return my call. So I think from that perspective, it's something that I would urge uh, my fellow Africans, you know, to maintain a good name, a good credit history, uh, you know, a good reputation through thick and thin. 
There's an anecdote you shared yesterday um, about the early days of Zimbabwe's entrepreneurial boon, certainly when you consider black participation. Um, I'm thinking of your emergence, some of the banks you mentioned um, earlier on, the, the early days of Econet, for example, you know, the induction of, of mobile telephony. And there's an interesting anecdote you shared yesterday that I'd like you to share now about the founder of the Econet Group, uh, a certain Strive Masiwa, and perhaps a lesser known aspect of your relationship with him and your participation in what is essentially, arguably, Zimbabwe's biggest listed company success story? Well, it's an interesting one because um, we went to school with uh, Tsitsi Masiwa, uh, Strive's wife. So I didn't know Strive from a bar of soap, and uh, we were introduced by Tsitsi to Strive. And uh, he was going to start this, uh, you know, mobile telephone company. And I mean, he was speaking very ambitiously about having a telephone in each individual Zimbabwean's hands. And I, you know, I kind of looked at this engineer and thought, you know, what's he been smoking? You know, that's uh, probably not legal. How, how conceivable is that? And I mean, maybe for people who aren't familiar with the environment, I mean, we're talking about a Zimbabwe at the time where not even every home had a landline, never mind the thought of a future with, with everyone having something in their hands. Um, I mean, you wake two, sometimes three months just to get a connection to your home. And it was like costly exercise. It was a status symbol in itself. And here's a guy saying you're going to put phones in everyone's hands. So it sounded preposterous, I mean, for lack of a better word. But he was focused. He was a clear thinker. And he was passionate. And soon enough, you know, after a couple of meetings, I bought into the story. I empathized with, uh, you know, the challenges that he was going through. I had already set up my little bank at the time. And so I, you know, out of uh, a brotherhood, a Christian brotherhood, then became a very, you know, close friend uh, to him. You're being modest. You were bowling at the time and you were like, this, this is my CSR. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, did some corporate social responsibility, some Christian brotherhood and lent him a couple of thousand, uh, hundred thousand dollars for legal fees, uh, you know, at certain critical moments. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. And eventually, because I didn't have adequate faith in this story, I said to him, I think it must have added up to about $2 million at the time. And I said to him uh, at the time of listing, so he retained us also as a stockbroker uh, for their listing. And I said to him at the time, I want my money back as soon as you <laughs> list your company. And I think they were raising some 60 odd million. So I said, Strive, remember. I want my money back. Mine is a loan. So he tried to persuade me to convert my loan into equity. And I said, no ways. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the brilliant banker you are. Yeah, I said, you know, my $2 million can make a whole lot more money, you know, in the money market than putting it into like a 20-year vision. What year is this again? This is 1998. 1998. And Strive, true to his word, repaid me the loan. Strive then appointed me to chair the Finance and Audit Committee, and which I did for 10 years. And um, he graciously then, uh, for all the assistance that I had offered him, gave me, you know, 2.5% of, of equity in this founding company. Goodness me. <laughs> and I mean, you know, so I mean, we bumbled along, as it were. It was difficult. Uh, you know, over the 10 years that I was there, 
it was, you know, blood, sweat and tears. It was not easy to grow that firm. And uh, I look now, uh, you know, it's uh, one of the lousiest investment decisions I ever made, I guess. Would you call it the biggest uh, investment mistake you've ever made? Probably. And, and done so casually. I sold the shares. You know, I sold 2.5% of the shares in the course of time. And whereas I could have left that as a portfolio investment. So, you know, in that sense. But that money was put to good use. You know, I bought assets. I diversified my portfolio further. But, you know, it's difficult, of course, to, to match the return on investment that 2.5% would have meant, uh, you know, had I left that value in that firm today. What are we calling the value cap today? Somewhere, is it the 7, 9 billion? Absolutely. Now, work out 2.5% of that. A uh, bit of a headache I'm getting, a little <laughs> cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah, but those are, you know, as an investor, you, 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 you invest and you don't cry over spilt milk. You move on. Can we use this as an, perhaps maybe a, a springboard for exploring...